What has happened more and more is that there are not single reliable sources. So just like there were some people telling me good teachers don't smile till Christmas and other reliable authorities saying, oh, no, no, you have to really develop a warm relationship if you're ever going to teach anybody anything. Authorities that almost everyone has access to now contradict each other. And so that means I can't just look outside myself. I have to start developing an internal sense of authority. Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast with Adam Rumack and Miriam Jones of We Are Open Circle. Today, we're joined by Deborah Helsing. She's the director of Minds at Work, an organization that helps people close the gap between our good intentions and our actual behavior. Minds at Work is based on adult human developmental theory and the science behind that, which shows us that humans develop in our complexity of mind throughout our lives. And Minds at Work has developed a coaching process that specifically helps us uncover what they call the immunity to change, the things that prevent us from achieving what we want in our lives and being who we want to be in our lives, and then helps us overturn that immune system and translate that into behavior and new perspectives. Deborah is going to talk to us today about her own developmental dilemmas, being an educator and meeting some developmental challenges that she couldn't solve with her current way of thinking about the world at that time and how that led her to finding a coach and then becoming a coach and a trainer of other coaches. She's also going to talk to us about developmental theory in general, particularly the theories of Robert Keegan and Lisa Leahy, and how that connects with people and organizational development. So it's a real honor to have Deborah with us today, sharing some of her story and also expert perspectives on this work. If you like what you hear, please follow the podcast, share it with some colleagues. You can find us on our website, weareopencircle.com. Follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn. And we hope that you'll join us for some of our in-person or online learning opportunities. We Are Open Circle is an organization and business and it's also a community. So please reach out, stay in touch, sign up for our newsletter. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy the episode. Deb, thank you so much for being with us today. It's just an honor to have you here and sharing more of your, your perspectives and your work with our community. I wanted to start by asking, how did you end up as the director of coach training, um, the director of Minds at Work? A little bit of your story. Yeah, sure. Um, So initially, I planned to be a teacher. One of the things that I was immediately struck by was how much more complex teaching was than other kinds of work I had done, or frankly, being a student. Because, you know, I can remember feeling like, as a student, the problems that you're working with are fairly clear cut. You'd read a book, and then you'd write an essay on what you thought of that book. And There'd be some kind of clear writing standards and, you know, sense of like, how well are you using logic in your arguments and things like that. And and then you got a clear result, like a grade with some feedback about what you did well and what you could do better. And then when I was teaching, I remember feeling like all of that just got multiplied by, you know, X, (laughs) that I felt like there were so many things happening. You know, even if I just thought about my relationship with one kid on one assignment. I felt like, okay, was I too hard on this kid or did I not give the kid enough support? And if the kid missed this, was it because I hadn't taught it very clearly or because they didn't study enough? And I felt like I could develop millions of questions without always feeling like I had clear paths to answer them. You know, I'm just talking about one kid there, but then when you think, okay, I've, you know, maybe 25 kids and just in one class and then there's a whole other class of kids, was teaching high school English, I just felt like at the end of every day, I had so many questions and was kind of suffering from analysis paralysis because I just had all these questions spinning around in my head, but felt like, I don't really know how I'm doing. I don't really know what's going to make things better or what's going to make things worse. And I had these bigger philosophical questions about you know, my authority as a teacher and what does good authority look like or just authority and how do I use authority? And 
and you know, there are lots of competing perspectives. So, you know, there's the like, don't smile till Christmas philosophy, which is you give those kids an inch, they'll take a mile. And then there is like another perspective, which would be, you really aren't going to be effective at anything if you can't first establish like a trusting relationship with your students. And so that's what you need to focus on first. And, you know, I just felt like, how do I bring those perspectives into relationship with each other? But meanwhile, I'm teaching all day, every day. So I also felt like I don't have time to be investigating all these questions. I mean, now when I look back at that, I think what I was experiencing was a much more complex world than I dealt with in the past. I didn't really have a framework. I didn't have capacities for how to deal with those. So interestingly enough, what a lot of teachers do in situations like that is they simplify things. They develop routines. And I can recognize that in my own teaching, there was a lot of inclination to do that, to try to make things simpler. But another thing that we learned from, you know, looking at research on teaching and and this is probably true of almost any profession, is that the way you continue to learn and grow is by running into problems, is by feeling uncertain about what to do and stepping back and reflecting on that and trying to uncover what are the beliefs I'm bringing to this and how would I know if those beliefs are working or not? And I became very fascinated by that. Like, how are teachers supposed to think? And if I had a a coach, a thinking coach, you know, maybe the same way an athlete might have a coach that asks them to imagine running a race as a way to improve their performance, like what would a coach even be telling me? And so that is how I first began to explore topics like adult development and immunity to change, which I think in some ways helped give me an explanation for what I had been experiencing as a teacher And also to suggest ways to work with issues like that and support other people who are in similar kinds of situations where they feel like what they're up to is more complex than they've been dealing with before or feel like they have lots of questions but don't really have a clear path for how to pursue them. Maybe don't even have a clear sense of what would be a better or more effective way to address these things or to be thinking about these things. So I had never set out to be a coach, but because in pursuing those topics, I realized that coaching is one way that they get operationalized as well as teaching and training and things like that, that I found myself kind of moving into these different professional areas too. And I currently teach at Harvard. I teach adult development and immunity to change there. And then I'm also the director at Minds at Work where we we train coaches in this process We consult with organizations, uh, we work with individual clients, helping them think through these kinds of issues, giving them tools to understand, you know, provides often a lens for them to be looking at what they're facing and to see what does that lens help me see about the struggles I have and ways I might best address those struggles. So great. I have about 10 threads that I want (laughs) to follow from what you just said. You can Um, relate to my a million questions experience then. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Always. And actually, that's where I kind of wanted to go, which was in the transition from teaching younger people. Those questions that you had were about yourself and your own process as well as their process. What's the difference between looking at a young person's development and the questions you were asking in terms of how you're supporting Mm -hmm. them and an adult developmental kind of paradigm? I mean, two things occur to me. So I had felt like my own learning in high school was pretty formulaic, you know, like memorize these dates and write them back down on a test and you'll get a good grade. And, you know, kind of feeling like a lot of what you're trying to do in your classes is suss out what does the teacher want me to say? And then let me just say it to them. And then when I got to college, I remember having this like, oh, oh, you want to know what I think about, but I really think about this. Okay. This is a whole different conversation and starting to figure out, I guess, how my own mind worked. So I was an English major in, in college, which probably makes sense given that that's what I ended up teaching. But I can remember like reading a novel, having impressions or reactions and realizing I can go back into the text and I can see what gave me that impression and 
kind of double click on it. Like, like how did I connect the dots there and that I can actually develop that into like a fuller argument, a fuller interpretation where I'm drawing on data and I'm connecting it to other things that happened in that novel and maybe even using a particular perspective, you know, like a feminist perspective or something like that to construct my case there, you know? So anyway, I thought like, whew, somebody should be doing this in high school. My high school experience would have been so much better if I had done that. So it didn't really work out that way. Most of the high school students I was teaching didn't read. You know? So I had to start there. It's not that I couldn't read, but they, they weren't interested in reading. They thought this doesn't have anything for me. And there's no way we can start talking about how you interpret something if nobody's reading. So I felt like I had to kind of figure out then like, what is going on for them? What's their experience like? How are they making sense of it? And how can I help them? But the other thing that really struck me about that experience was when I was in high school, I remember being caught up in the swirl of what's cool and what's not cool. And part of the sussing out of what the teacher wants from me is also connected to sussing out like, what are the things that it's okay to say out loud and nobody will laugh at you? What are things you keep to yourself? You know, developing that like public face and then keeping other stuff private. But when I started teaching high school, I thought, oh my God, it's so clear what's going on with these kids and all the things that seemed complicated and mysterious to me look completely transparent. And I could see how this attempt to be cool could be coming out of someone's insecurity or desperate need to fit in and belong. It just seems so obvious to me. And I think that was possible because I was not developmentally in the same place I had been any longer. And once you get an external perspective, everything looks different. Everything suddenly looks clearer than it does when all you can see is like from the inside of that experience. And the same thing is true in adulthood, except I think for most of us in adulthood, we don't have that. We don't have a sense of what an external perspective could be if we're not familiar with theories of adult development. And we don't often have another adult who's much wiser following us around and kind of pointing that out to us of how we're making sense of things in an oversimplified way, or we're putting together pieces in a way that is limited and could be much more expansive. So I think one of the things that's appealing to me about theories of adult development is they help you do that. They help you kind of step outside the way you're making sense of things and see, wow, there could be a whole other way I'm putting things together and I can't spontaneously create it myself, but looking at the theory and, and trying to use the, the tools and the ideas of the theory and the patterns, I can kind of start to imagine what that is and try it on a little bit and see, is that intriguing to me? Does it help me look at this situation and see how I'm getting in my own way or how my options may be much more narrow than they could be? So I'm, I'm intrigued by the the urge to sort of simplify in the face of complexity. And when I look out at the world and I see polarized oversimplifications of very complex situations, for example, climate change or national politics, or even in an organization, it's like, this is the way it should be. We're working towards that, maybe unconsciously, maybe in hidden ways, avoiding other perspectives. I'm curious about how you tackle that problem the problem of motivating people to go beyond the safe harbor of our simplifications. Yeah, it's hard. I absolutely understand the difficulty of it in a personal way. I notice myself feeling like ideas that I have thought through a lot and you know feel like I've gotten to a conclusion that feels satisfying to me. I can see how I can kind of hang on to those so that in the face of like disagreement, my first reaction is to kind of double down on those. And when I sort of check out why is that, I think part of it is about how we might look to other people. You know, so if I look clear and more persuasive because I can explain, you know, my thinking, then I am assuming I'll have more respect from other people. They'll think I know what I'm talking about. So I feel like there's that kind of motivation to keep things as clear and with an answer. I think there's an internal struggle going on too, which is like, if this is my unique perspective and what I think I bring to a situation, then questioning it or being open to a different perspective that might lead me to change my mind 
I think there's that feeling of danger, like I'm going to lose my uniqueness. I'm going to lose my sense that I can offer something to this conversation or my own sense of being connected to, you know, what makes me special. I notice those in myself. I think it's also very common to feel a sense of community with other people who have those same beliefs and not wanting to do anything to cause tension or damage in those relationships. I don't want them to see me as disloyal or something like that. You know, I think that can be a powerful motivation. And so there's a lot of forces, I think, that we can experience as pressure to just toe the line and say back the thinking that we've already done, as opposed to allowing ourselves to be open to changing our minds, which means, you know, looking for the things that my answer doesn't really satisfactorily address and being willing to move toward that with curiosity and a willingness to put all the other stuff that I have developed on the line. So part of that is whatever internal work I need to do to feel like that's worth it. But then part of it's also, I think, creating spaces where we can do that, where if I were to say to you, you know what, I'm going to rethink this adult development stuff, like maybe I've got it all wrong here, that you and I would be able to create a space where we could explore it. And I wouldn't feel like your immediate response is like, see, I've been telling you all along, you're an idiot, you know, because if that's the space we've created, that's going to make it a lot harder for someone to explore their ideas too. I think it's hard to find spaces where you feel like I really can kind of bring myself to the edge of what I know and start to explore what lies maybe just past that. I think it's hard to do that for ourselves too. What do you think motivates people to do that? And I'm thinking you probably work and we work with people who maybe their boss brought you in to work with them on an immunity map or on a change process. And so they're doing it maybe without like, yeah, I'm really motivated to change and grow and see the limitations of my own thinking. So how do you invite people to that edge with all that you've learned? I mean, I think for most of us, it's not something we seek out. It's something that happens more when we're aware that our answer isn't working. Like, let's say I've been promoted into a new leadership role. And part of the reason I've been promoted is because I'm really good at getting things done, at making sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. And I never hesitate to take on work. And people have seen that and rewarded that. But now as a leader, I realize I can't do it all. I'm going to have to delegate some of this and I'm going to have to help develop other people to take it on. And so at some point, I'm starting to realize my answer that I've been using, which is I'll just do it all myself and that's how I'll get rewarded and that's how I'll feel good about myself, is not a sufficient answer anymore. That over and over, I'm seeing I need to have more choices. I need to have more options. And so having those kinds of situations, and they can come up in a million different ways, helps us begin to identify, okay, there's something I need to get better at. There's something I need to work on. You know, sometimes it's a very clear issue that I feel like, oh, that should be too hard to learn. Let me just Google that, you know, or let me just take a class, or let me just ask somebody for advice. And I feel like I do that and I can see I'm getting better. It's like, oh, I can see I need to I need to make a list of all the things I need to do and sort them into what can I easily give to somebody else and what should I do myself? You know, that might help me. What often happens with an issue like this is we realize, even though I know what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm not actually doing it. Or I start doing it, but then I find I've kind of slipped back into my old habits. And that would suggest to me then that in addition to just having good ideas, good advice, good information, good ways to change my behavior, that I'm being presented with something that challenges my mindset, challenges the way I make sense of things. And it could be because it's more complex than, you know, with the capacities I bring to the situation, kind of like my teaching experience. Or it could just be that the beliefs I have about myself and my leadership and how I'll get rewarded, things like that, I've been just holding in a much more unconscious way and they're what's limiting me. And so I'm going to need to surface them. I'm going to need to make them explicit. And so if one of those beliefs is that the way you 
are most effective in your role is you take it all on and you do it all yourself and you do it really well and you make sure all the details are accounted for, then anytime I try to delegate things, I'm going to feel like I'm not really doing a good job. And that could have a whole host of related beliefs, like other people won't think I'm as valuable and that I'm not really contributing if I delegate more to other people because they'll be the ones doing that work. A lot of these things, you know, we may not have ever chosen and said, yes, this is what I believe, but because of our experiences and the way we've been raised. And so what the immunity to change process does is it helps us uncover them and make them clear to ourselves so that we can check them out, so that we can see, is that actually true or not? Most of the time, what we find is there may be some truth to some of our beliefs, but that they've been limiting us. They've been telling us these are the only things that are possible. And so we start to see we can develop more choices for ourselves, more ways of of being effective as a leader that allow us to grow and handle greater complexity. What does it look like to go through a community to change process? What does that look like? What's the why behind it? What are you looking for as a coach when you're going through that or as a coachee when you get to participate in that? Yeah. So I'll maybe use an example from my own life. So I can remember 10, 15 years ago, getting fairly consistent feedback that I could be pushing people harder, offering more challenge. So for example, a coachee might say, you know, I want you to be harder on me. I want you to kind of challenge the ways I'm making sense of things more than you do. But that also might be the case as a teacher in holding more of a stricter structure or as a parent. And you feel like as a leader, I could be doing a better job of not just being compassionate and understanding with the people I'm leading, but a little bit stronger in terms of like holding a boundary around this is what you're accountable for and giving you that feedback of when you're not doing what you need to be doing. And so you take that as a starting goal. Okay, I'm committed to getting better, challenging people, kind of being a little more direct, maybe pushing a little bit more. And then the next question that you ask yourself or someone asks you is, what do you do that works against that or gets in the way of that? And you want to just come up with a list of behaviors. So that could be things like, I take on the other person's perspective and I see how that makes a lot of sense and I agree with them, but I don't also consider a different perspective, suggest to them, here's a whole other way you could be making sense of things or what are the limits of your perspective. I don't offer that challenging perspective to them. Could be I don't let them know when they're doing something that I feel like does cross a boundary, maybe is asking too much of me. So then once I have that list of the things I'm doing that work against my goal, I ask myself, well, if I imagine trying to change those things, you know, to not be so quick to be understanding of their perspective and to suggest that I agree with it, but instead to to challenge it, to point out the limitations of it, what would be the most uncomfortable thing for me about that? And so I can remember at that time coming up with, I think people are going to think that, I mean, to use the vernacular, a bitch, (laughs) that I'm overly aggressive and kind of mean-spirited looking for what's wrong and a little arrogant, like, because I think I know better than they do. So what that shows me is, wow, that would be pretty awful to feel like I'm that kind of person or to have other people see me that way. And so to protect myself from that, I spend a lot of energy to make sure that nobody ever sees me that way and I don't see myself that way. We call that a hidden or a competing commitment, a commitment to never looking like a bitch, never feeling like I think I know better than somebody else. So you can see how, on the one hand, I want to get better at being more direct, challenging people more, and I'm spending another kind of energy to protect myself from my worst fears, which would be, oh, that I would look like a bitch, you know, think I know better than other people. And that creates a lot of tension. The energy I'm spending to get better at being more direct is getting canceled out by the energy I'm spending trying to make sure that nobody ever thinks I'm arrogant. So that's what we would call a psychological immune system, a way that I've been keeping myself stuck. And what we then begin to do is to say, well, what do I believe that tells me why I need to keep protecting myself from that danger? And that we call big assumptions. So 
one of the assumptions that I developed, I think is probably related to being a white woman, you know, so bitch is not a random word, right? That's a sense of like probably how I was raised and all the messages I received about being a good girl, being a nice person. And so I assume that if I stray from that expectation and I do push harder and I am more direct with people, I've strayed beyond the boundaries of what's expected of me and what I get rewarded for. Another kind of assumption might be what other people think of me in some way shapes what I think of me. So like if other people think I'm a bitch, then I am a bitch. An assumption like that would suggest I'm still sort of governed by the socialized mind where I'm looking to an external source of authority for my own sense of, you know, how I am, how I make sense of things. And you can see how that would then be shaping my understanding of how I coach or lead or parent. You can generate several more assumptions. And I had one that was sort of like, you're either a bitch or a pushover. And there's just this like tiny tightrope walk in between these two sources of danger, right? All kinds of things like that. So what you can see is that if you start to explore those beliefs, you can start to learn if they are in any way inaccurate. And probably the most productive way that I explored those beliefs was when other coaches sometimes talked about their coaching, they would tell me like, this client came in and he was just talking, 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 talking. And I was like, listen, if what you wanted to do was hire a good listener, I can do that. I'm a good listener, but I don't think that's going to be really useful for you. And so instead of just telling me this whole story, I want you to figure out what you're doing here. And I would be thinking to myself like, oh my God, you didn't really say that to them like that, you know? And so I realized when people told me they wanted me to be more challenging or be more direct, initially started to make, you know, me feel like, oh no, I could never do that because I was assuming like, that's what it looks like to be more direct. That's what it looks like to be more challenging. And so once I had surfaced that belief that, you know, I'm going to look like a bitch, I'm going to look arrogant, I'm going to look like I know more about them than they know about themselves... I started finding all these ways you can be more challenging, more direct, that don't mean you tell people, listen, you know, you figure out why you're here, you're wasting my time kinds of things. You know, I could ask a question like, can I just play devil's advocate for a minute and offer them perspective? But I'm not saying it's mine, and I'm certainly not saying theirs is wrong. I'm just saying, let's just bring another perspective into the room. Or I can say, okay, so you've just told me how you're interpreting that situation. How would you know if there's a whole other way you could be interpreting the situation. You know, there are all kinds of ways you can do that, that to me did not feel like, oop, you know, you're being a bitch. So you can see what that allows me to do is to handle a situation that's more complex than a simple, you can do what you're doing or you can be a bitch <laughs> with many, many more choices. So I become more complex. I start to kind of grow out of a more simplified way I've understood the world and to start to be able to create a more complex framework, a more complex understanding of myself, of the situation, of who they are, that can kind of get my arms around it, as opposed to kind of feeling like overwhelmed by it because the challenge is bigger than what I can handle. So immunity to change allows you to do that. It gives you kind of a curriculum to explore something that feels kind of big and complex and frustrating because you realize like I'm not handling this as well as I want to in a way that gives you a pathway to starting to develop that complexity. So it is uh, helping move you along that developmental trajectory, giving you a way to, to do that for yourself. It strikes me that the way you're describing it is that the immunity system that we develop sees change as a disease, almost like changing the perception of change itself. Yeah, because like your biological immune system fights off disease, you know, and similarly, your psychological immune system, yes, I think is fighting off change, although I don't think it's necessarily change itself. I think it's the part of you that is threatened by the change. So the part of me that sees that change as dangerous, where those things I'm worried about, those like worst dreaded images looking like a bitch, or I know better than you do about you, that's the part it's fighting off. Because I'm not going there, I am not changing. I'm not getting better. <laughs> and, it, and it sounds to me like you can't do it by letting it be scary almost. So the process has to go, well, let's do it in a way that's not scary. Yeah. I guess what your question leads me to think about is two things. So one is a lot of times what you learn is I can get better at this thing without me experiencing all of those terrible dangers that I've named in the worry box. And that's because I had an oversimplified idea of what it would mean to get better at that thing. 
But there's a second possibility, which is sometimes you find out some of my assumptions were true. So let's say I decided I was going to push someone harder and they got annoyed with me. Maybe they didn't think I was a bitch, but they were sort of like, oh, she was really hard on me. Most of the time, what we're assuming is like, that would be awful. Like that would be the end of the world. And so sometimes what people learn is that thing that I thought was the end of the world turned out to be true and I can handle it. I can handle it if people get mad at me sometimes. I can handle it if people feel like I asked more of them than they felt like they could do right in that moment. It's not without cost, but it was worth it in some way. When I look at what I'm trying to get better at and the potential that could come from that and the cost of not getting better at that, I realized that this danger is not as big and scary and terrible as I thought it was. It's kind of worth it. It sounds like it opens up more choice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what follows the uncovering of the immune system are a series of experiments that help a person change their behavior incrementally. It's a really embodied, active process once we can see that pattern, right? Yeah. So yeah, there's all kinds of ways that you can learn about your assumptions that don't mean pushing someone harder and seeing what happens you know, which can feel pretty scary initially. So like I can remember going back to people I'd coached or worked with in the past and asking them, did you feel like I could have pushed you harder and would you have wanted me to and when? And, you know, so you can learn a lot there, just getting kind of other clear data from people that you've worked with that didn't feel really scary to me. Instead of the first voices in my head being the voices of people who told off their clients, I could go looking for coaches that I thought, ah, that person I think is incredibly effective and I think probably does push people harder than I do, but I haven't ever heard them talk about it in a way that I would feel immediately like, yikes, that sounds like you're being a bitch, you know? So I'd ask them, how do you do this? What would you do in this situation? What do you say here? So, you know, I could develop a lot of strategies that way. Those are really safe things to do. You know, I haven't actually been more challenging to a coachee yet. But it allows me then to feel much more prepared because I'm already starting to disconfirm my big assumptions that the only way I can hold someone more accountable, challenge them more, is to be a bitch. I start saying, oh, no, there's all these other possibilities that now feel safer to try out. So I'm learning that my big assumption was, at least in some ways, inaccurate, definitely exaggerated or oversimplified. So I'm starting to be able to change my mind, see I'm not in the danger I had assumed I was in. So that when I do try it with a client, I feel like, okay, I can try one of these strategies out and I can see how that goes. And I can even ask that client, did it feel like I was pushing you too hard there? And gives me more information to learn about my assumptions, all of which helps me then learn when I can safely change my behavior without getting into that terrible, dangerous territory and, and become a better coach and a better mom and a better leader and improve in all of the ways that that particular focus allowed me to. At some point, all of us, everyone who's listening to this is going to be able to look back and think of that time when they were faced with not a technical problem, but a mindset or adaptive problem that we could only overcome through either the grace of someone, an elder, wiser person to be there for us, or we had someone to kind of walk with us as a, as a coach, as you said, and help us see beyond those. Or yeah. we just thrashed it out ourselves and made a bunch of mistakes. That, that was my preferred way. But, you know, it. so I, I realized like I'm going to have to figure out how to determine if I'm a good teacher or not. I don't have some easy, clear, single grade that's going to let me know that. And so it was way more complex than I was used to handling. And yeah, I was I was pretty lost. So obviously I love this stuff. But thinking about like the metrics by which some of the CEOs that we work with, they might want to reduce the metrics to profit. Well, if it's profitable, it's okay. Or turnover rates. But that to me, it always strikes me and us as like one of those oversimplifications. There's so many factors, particularly if we have any kind of purpose-driven mission to our work, it makes things very, very complex and hard to assess in a quantifiable or even qualitative way. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that, you know, if, you, if you're looking at profits or something like that, those are often quantifiable. So you do end up with like clear data. 
and or turnover rates. You have clear data. But I think, yeah, if you're thinking, I want to create an environment where people are fulfilled and where they're flourishing, how are you going to reduce that to a number you know, and know if you're doing it or not, let alone how to put that in relationship to the other factors? Yeah, just gets way more complex. And exciting. Yeah. More so than ever, at least in my lifetime, it's not just an individual question, but a general global question that feeling of like the problems are so complex and so different in structure than anything that we've drawn on in the past that even our elders know of like where do we go to find the answers. And I wonder how this applies if you were to take it out of what you were describing on an individual basis. Like what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, You know, I, I feel like, too, a useful thing maybe to bring more into the foreground is developmental theory here, too. Going from a way of evaluating what's good or what's right or, you know, how I can see my own value to looking at external standards or external sources of authority where I may feel like I can reliably look to get a clear perspective. So. If growing up that was my parents, I could look to my parents as a reliable source of how am I doing? Am I a good daughter? Am I fulfilling your expectations? And and that would make sense, right? That would be appropriate for me growing, you know, into adolescence. I may also look to other groups uh, that I belong to, peer groups, could be a religion or it could be a nationality. You know, I may also be looking to that. What does it mean to be you know, a a loyal American or a good Christian or what would the other moms in my neighborhood think is good mothering. And as long as I have kind of a reliable external source to be looking at and evaluating how I'm doing, that's great. That allows me to feel like I know what to line up with. But what has happened more and more is that there are not single reliable sources So just like there were some people telling me good teachers don't smile till Christmas and other reliable authorities saying, oh, no, no, you have to really develop a warm relationship if you're ever going to teach anybody anything. Authorities that almost everyone has access to now contradict each other. And so that means I can't just look outside myself. I have to start developing an internal sense of authority. That challenge is in the constructive developmental theory of Bob Keegan, a challenge from moving from the socialized stage of knowing, socialized being like I'm really internalizing those perspectives of the external authorities in my life and taking them on as my own. And But I also need them. I need to have them continue to exist so I can look at them and know if I'm doing okay. To getting to a place where I realize I'm going to have to figure that out for myself. And that challenge then allows me to begin to develop what in Keegan's model would be the self-authoring capacities. So like the next stage of development where it's not like I don't care what external authorities think. I'm able to consult them as a way to also then put them into relationship with each other and figure out for myself, well, where do I stand here? What am I going to take from these different perspectives or If I choose to ally with one, why am I doing that? I feel like that move allows me so many other possibilities. And that's what these theories and the research suggests is that if I'm only looking to an external source of authority and I haven't really developed the capacity to justify those beliefs myself to say, well, why do I end up deciding this way? Then it's going to be really hard for me in experiencing a challenge to those beliefs. So if good mothering in my neighborhood means, you know, when your baby's crying at night, you should always let the baby learn to put themselves back to sleep, although I never learned how to self-soothe. You know? And I become so identified with that and it helps me know I'm being a good mom. But if somebody else comes along and says, oh, well, your poor baby is crying themselves to sleep. What damage are you doing? You're teaching them that, that you will not be there for them when they need you, you know? My only response to that will be to be threatened by it. 
to feel like I've just got to tell you it's wrong and I may not be able to even be rational about why it's wrong. I'm just so flooded and so triggered by it because I'm so identified with this other perspective. Whereas once I'm able to say I can put these different theories into relationship with each other, you can handle disagreement and difference and conflict without feeling so immediately personally threatened. So if you take that to the global scale, or if you think about that with large groups, that same thing is happening, that same kind of way that we can get so identified with one perspective as right because it's right because it's right, because that's how I do it, that's how everybody around me does it, it makes it threatening when somebody comes along and contradicts that. And It used to be you could probably go your whole life without running into a lot of those kinds of like global cultural conflicts. But now uh, the way our world works is you're probably going to be confronted with those kinds of disagreements regularly, maybe on social media, maybe on the news, maybe in your neighbor, maybe at work. And that's sort of one thread of that, the sort of conflict and disagreement thread of that. But I think it does give us a, a window on the, I think, culture conflicts that are happening at the global scale. Yeah, I keep on thinking back to in organizational development where we were going to construct a deliberately developmental organization. And that means technically something different to maybe how you think about it conceptually. And when you were first talking about motivations, it's often not those constructed things that force the change. But here we are in this moment that is, from what you just said, enforcing a kind of a developmental push and we need to respond to it. Like when I think about the CEOs talking about, well, we actually don't know what to do. And then the things that come in aren't necessarily, they haven't planned for those obstacles to come in, but they are necessarily developmental. And what do we do with that? We can think we can control and you know plan that <laughs> this is how we're going to develop and we can handle this. And but then when they come in, as they have been, what, what do we do? How can we help ourselves and others in our organisations, in our homes, in our schools to handle that in a positive or in a generative way? Yeah, probably the thing that we see most often is not people saying, gee, I don't know, and I wonder how I can figure this out and kind of grow into the answer. Probably the first reaction most people have is is to double down, you know, and to feel like, no, 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 this is the way we've always done it. So this is the way we should keep doing it and stop coming to me with all this information that it's not working, you know. And I think we see lots of examples of that. But so then I feel like there is a bit of a more courageous maybe or readiness, I guess, to say, the answers I've had are not sufficient anymore. And if I'm trying to lead an organization through what feels to me suddenly like a very chaotic, turbulent times where everything feels like it's getting disrupted, I do think you need to figure out how am I both going to create that internal space for myself to figure out like what what do I think good leading is going to look like here and what am I going to need as a leader to do that? And then to create the space with other people to help you do that. So people who are not going to say, are you kidding me? You aren't going to tell us what to do, (laughs) but who are able to say, okay, then if this is too complex for us to just use the ways we've been, you know, doing business so far, we're going to have to, maybe it's as a leadership team, start to figure out what's a different approach to this. And it's probably beyond the brain of any one of us. So we're each going to have to kind of bring our own perspectives and background and lenses through which we see these issues to learn together. And how do we create that space where we really can learn together and try things on and ask ourselves questions like, well, how will we know if that's going to work better? And so I think you do see organizations starting to do these really interesting things like run experiments. They'll try a little pilot program and see how that's working. We'll start to collect some results early on to let us know if we're moving in the right direction or not so that we can change directions if we need to. And the most agile organizations are realizing we're going to have to operate in that way. We're not going to come to a new answer that works all the time and then just ride that out. We're going to have to figure out how do we keep iterating, figuring out new things, learning, adjusting course. And I think that's a very different way of leading than people have led in the past. So you're making me think about 
stage five leadership. Mm. Just for the people that might not have the lingo, when you're talking about this is the way that you're supposed to parent, I'm assuming that was about the socialized mind, just adhering to one ideological perspective or social perspective on how to do things or how to think about things. And the movement to self-authorship when those conflicting and maybe equal authorities are not cohering anymore and there's a developmental dilemma that happens as we move to self-authorship where we start to be able to deduce what is right given our situation and our experiences of the past. So there's also another stage of development, which is very statistically rare beyond self-authorship. We're curious about it. I think it invites a lot of questions about what that could look like. How do we get there? I think there's an intrigue among people that it's kind of an evolutionary possibility for humanity too. So yeah, I would love for if you could share your thoughts and, and perspectives from the developmental theory on that as well. Yeah. So if I think about the self-authoring leader who is able to look at differing views and put them into relationship with each other and think about what am I going to take from these or how am I going to integrate them or which of these am I going to choose? What we tend to have done at that stage is we've developed some kind of core sense of like our identity, our personal mission and purpose and goals. And then we're looking to be consistent with that. So whatever I do, whatever roles I take on parenting or leader or whatever, I'm looking to stay consistent with those core values. And you can think about an organization in that way too. Like an organization has its like mission statement, its core sense of identity. And many organizations have had very long successful histories of living that mission in a particular way and with a particular kind of culture and successful results. And so continuing to succeed has meant like staying faithful to that mission and those core values and that consistent way we've been operating. However, anytime you do that, anytime you've carved out your own ideological perspective, you've also then cast other things out. And so said those are not consistent with that core identity and they would feel like a fundamental conflict, like fundamentally enemy uh, that would undermine those core values. And so for many situations that we'll face in our adult lives and probably in our leadership, that's fine. You know, we can go through our lives feeling like it allows us to sort of be uh, standing on our own two feet with our own values and living them out. But I think as the pace of change in the world continues to increase, gives us more and more complex problems and probably we create problems, right? We create incredibly complex problems and our current capacities don't allow us to solve those problems. If we could, we would have solved them. The fact they persist as problems suggests to us in some way it outstrips our current capacities. It's more complex than what we can handle. I think Einstein is given credit for saying we'll never solve today's problems with our current level of consciousness, right? To solve them, you have to you have to increase your level of consciousness. And so we're seeing that. We're seeing that happen as pace of change just continues to increase and organizations are struggling to keep up and adapt as new startups come and disrupt, you know, a market. And suddenly all these like established organizations are having to rethink their models and, you know, take another look at who they have been all along. Globalization, I think, you know, being able to understand not just how your organization works in a particular culture, but in all kinds of different cultures. And all of this requires not just then consistency with a core set of values, but evolution and maybe constant evolution. And so the next stage, the self-transforming stage, which is rare, and we see it in probably in people you know, who are facing the most complexity, which you know, may very well be leaders, where what they are most identified with then is not consistency with that ideology, but in transformation, in evolution. And so they're trying to build a structure, not that will remain consistent, but that is designed to continually evolve. And not just in how they do things, but in the fundamental mission or the fundamental sense of who we are, what business we are in, allowing that to be continuing to grow and change. And that means it's like a fundamentally different way of thinking about how do we organize ourselves? How do we think about the structure of our organization? And it probably looks less and less like a clear way that everything kind of funnels up to a leader or a team of leaders, 
Although interestingly, in a lot of these organizations, there's still hierarchy, but it's often a different way of using hierarchy where just the simple fact that you have positional power is not enough. So you are expected to be growing and learning and changing and demonstrating what you do and don't know just as much as anybody else is in the organization. You're expected to model the same uncertainty and vulnerability that others in the organization are and also working on, so how do I work with that? How does that allow me to keep learning and growing so that I can also ask that of everyone else in the organization and creates a very different way of thinking about then those structures and what it's like to go to work every day and how you relate to other people there. You're really bringing up for me. I know structures and organizations, we all do, that have put that in place. And the sense of betrayal of people of like, what are you doing to me? Are you deliberately disorientating me? (laughs) You know, I guess what I hear and what you say is a structure which is self-transforming but could be interrelating with people at different levels of adult development that would find that structure very disorientating because it's not giving them any more what they need and that betrayal of like, you said you were going to give me that and now you're not. What are you asking of me? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I think there is that expectation. You will come to work every day knowing you're going to feel uncomfortable, knowing you'll be not just working on all the things that you're good at and you've learned how to do well, but actively taking on work that is beyond what you can do right now, because that's actually the best way that you'll continue to grow and learn and develop. And if as an organization, that's happening for all people at all levels and all the time, then we're growing as an organization. And so sometimes people think about it a little bit as like an investment in loss, because anytime you're working on something that you're not already good at, it's going to take you longer and feel harder and your results initially won't be as good and you're developing capacity. And so in the short term, it may seem ineffective, but in the longer term, it's a way that your whole organization is going to be more and more powerful and able to handle more and more complexity. First glance, that doesn't seem to make sense, but when you kind of look at the bigger picture, look at the longer term, you see how it makes sense. I think there are all kinds of good questions and challenges people can bring to this, like how do I trust that you are not using your power in a way that exploits me, you know, keeps me off balance in a way that allows you to maintain power over me, or that this isn't all about profit. And so the parts of me you want to develop are the parts that can give you more profit, you know, all kinds of really good questions like that, that I think they're not trivial. And so the you know ways you think about designing the organization, the practices you're using, how you know if you're doing it with integrity and ethics, both improve everything. You know, the more you ask those questions and redesign and rethink, the better those practices will be, the whole culture will be. So how do we welcome those kinds of questions and use them as ways to get better and and take them seriously without them? stalling us either. Because of course, all of those questions about the ethics of working in an organization are there however the organization is structured. But anytime I think you try to do it in a different way, it raises those issues. You know, people start to say like, ooh, this is different. Isn't that somehow threatening? Because it is. It's threatening the ways that they've thought of work and themselves and how to know they're doing a good job. I have a smile on my face because I, the idealist in me is like, yes, we're doing this. It's so that you can handle the disruptions of the world. We're, we're doing a public service. <laughs> Trust us. You're going to need this because the world's going to be giving you all these disruptions. So we're just building that capacity for good, you know. <laughs> yeah. So we call these organizations deliberately developmental organizations. One of the things that we see in them is a real commitment to I can't ask you to do anything that I am not also doing myself and that you can't see me doing. So we say often, it's like the leader goes first. If I am asking you to be more open to receiving feedback about limits, your blind spots, things like that, then it's all the more essential that you've seen me taking negative feedback seriously, identifying my blind spots and my weaknesses and figuring out how I'm going to work on them in ways that you can also see me work on them. You know, it has to really be happening at all levels in the organization 
And if it is, I think it's an incredibly powerful model for people to see and develops a huge amount of trust. If it's not, you can imagine how it becomes, you're doing this to us. Questions about the ethics and integrity of it are the first things that'll come up. I'm going to just ask one more question when we're talking about self-transforming mindset and deliberately developmental organizations. Is it just about creating the structures that are malleable and agile? Or does the leadership or those that have influence, do they also need to be at that mindset in order to not limit the, the actual capacity of the organization to operate at that level? It's a great question. And I don't think I've seen many examples of situations where the leader's level of development hasn't both enabled things and limited things. Because for example, like if I were your boss, Adam, and you had your own ideas about how things could work, initiative you wanted to take on a project or something like that, if it at all differed from mine, I'm likely to see that as a threat and to feel like in some way you're not complying. There are probably millions of people in that situation every day where they can sort of see that my boss is limiting what I'm able to do in my role because their expectations of me feel like a little bit too small. So my very well-intentioned, hey, I've got an idea. What if we did it this way? Or, you know, what do you think about this? Gets shut down and seen as disloyalty or you're trying to, you know, undermine me or something like that. That's going to limit what you can do, what I can do, and what the organization can do. And more than likely you'll leave or find some way to work around me and, and go find another role where you feel like, I can be more fully myself here, you know, that I'm not asked to operate in just this narrow bandwidth. So if I, as a leader, am just allowed to continue to operate that way, probably I won't continue to grow and I'll just continue to either find employees who not rock the boat, not come up with their own ideas, or continue to create uncomfortable situations for people that you know, leave them feel like, okay, I either have to leave or make the choice to stay in this situation that feels very unfulfilling to me. So yes, unless you can find ways to help leaders grow and develop and be looking for those opportunities, you are really going to be holding back an organization. We see tons of examples of ways that people face really hard choices about how to be themselves in an organization that just continually does not recognize them for who they are. It's kind of like an emperor wears no clothes situation too. The developmental frame with which we're seeing people it's going to limit what we see and see anything that could change that frame as a threat or a betrayal or not even important enough to look at. Yeah. You know, I could be you know, at the socialized stage and be an expert. Could be I have tons of financial knowledge or tons of technology knowledge, you know, that helped me get into this position. But the way that I hold that as here's the right way to do it and please just do it that way, no matter how expert I am, is going to hold people back and hold me back and the organization back. I know we're coming to the end of our time and I'm thinking back to the beginning and your role as an educator. And as you're talking about the immunity to change process and everything that we've talked about today, I'm thinking that this is really about turning our life into the curriculum of our ongoing yeah. learning. And you were talking about authority and power and using your authority well, using your power to turn the power of the learning back to the people that we're working with, to not say, this is what you need to learn <laughs> in order to get that A or to be a successful coach or, or learner, but to be successful by your own measure and then even finding what it is that you need to learn along the way and the teachers and the resources, people that are already there in your, in your life or in your past experience. And I think that's really, really powerful. I agree with that completely. I remember actually to maybe come back full circle talking to a teacher once and she said, you know, I think if you are a really reflective teacher and you're looking to explore the problems you're facing and work through them and really reflect deeply on yourself. Like you probably don't need a therapist because <laughs> any buttons, you know, people could push, your students will figure out how to push them, you know? And so it is, she said for her, it was like kind of a curriculum. I think adult development and immunity change kind of gave me a curriculum, a way to say like, how do you look at the things you're just daily experiencing at work and in your parenting and in your 
friendships and your intimate relationships, and you're going to be running into problems all over the place. And it, it does give you a way to work through them, a way to say, rather than feeling like I'm drowning in them or the kind of analysis paralysis where I can, I can think about them over and over, but I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere. It gave me tools to make productive use of those problems. One way you can look at it is I'm not just trying to solve those problems. I'm also seeing that the problems can solve me. I work through myself. I come to find greater capacity, greater choice, a bigger playing field, and then a next set of challenges to continue that process. So much wisdom in what you've shared and in the process that you're advocating and bringing into the world and sharing with folks like us and people that are listening and just really appreciate it and appreciate you for also continually bringing it back to your own story and how it's impacted your life personally. Thank you so much for that. Thank you guys. I've had a lot of fun and enjoyed exploring these different topics with you. We could just continue to indulge <laughs> our, our curiosity for hours. <laughs> Yeah, I'm a big nerd for this stuff, so yeah, <laughs> I could do. <laughs> the Beyond Listening podcast is brought to you by We Are Open Circle, a social impact business that helps change makers, organizations, and community groups evolve and thrive with integrity in our rapidly changing world. Our Beyond Listening program was designed to transform the way organizations work with complexity, rapid change, and the wisdom of diversity in a world that demands constant collective adaptation. Sign up for our newsletter for more Beyond Listening podcasts and view our upcoming trainings.